Hello and welcome to the Self-Consciousness Podcast. I am your host, Jennifer Way. So, hey, I do readings over the phone. They go pretty deep. You know why? Because you deserve it. You might be looking for that or not, but sometimes you need a little help redirecting your focus within. And sometimes you need a little help recognizing your own discernment or intuition. If this speaks to you, you can go to Jennifer Way, that's W-A-I.com, and check out my work as you consider whether an intuitive consultant could be what you need right now. Okay, good, that's over. Today, I am sharing with you a voice that I've known since I was a kid in Baldwin, Long Island. Um, yeah, really, really going back. Um, Dr. Casey Palios is a psychiatrist and researcher with over a decade of experience in the use of psychedelic medicines for the treatment of mental illness, dating back to his work while still in residency training as a study therapist in the landmark psilocybin cancer anxiety study at NYU. Since 2016, he has served as a study therapist and principal investigator in the MAP-sponsored MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD phase two and three clinical trials. Presently, he also serves as a scientific director at Mindbloom, Inc., and is co-founder, president, and medical director of Nautilus Sanctuary, a nonprofit psychedelic research and clinical institution based in New York City. So yeah, <laughs> just, just a couple of things. You know, here, here on the Self-Consciousness Podcast, I, I'm here to share perspectives, ideas, and personal journeys in self-awareness and that is why this episode is so special. For me, the idea of taking on like the path to being a doctor is one I never think I could ever do. But I look at people who do go into this field, into the medical field, medical care, anyone who engages in that journey, and I look at them with such admiration. Um, I think a lot of this has to do with like growing up on Long Island to like Jewish parents and grandparents who are very much like, Oh, so-and-so's son is a doctor. You know, like that was a very big, that was a very big uh, bragging rights in my town. Um, so, you know, I knew that Casey went into medicine, but we'd lost touch almost after like 25 years. So to be able to hear Casey talk about his path from a really profound and personal place was so spectacular for me to witness because here's a person who needed to pursue this field for the right reasons, you know, going through his own seeking, not because, you know, his dad told him it was a good idea. Um, you know, he he went through journeys of, of suffering to, to feel truly aligned on this path to, to be serving humanity to the best of one's ability. Um, he's definitely gone through his initiations, um, and it's almost like he's becoming more of a healer and not just a doctor. Uh, you know, this this episode really speaks a lot to how do we merge science and spirit? Um, yada, yada, yada. So I'm so happy you're here. You look great. Thank you for spending your time here when there's so many other things to listen to. I appreciate you. All right, here we go. Oniva. The sound is good? Sound is good, yeah. All right. Well, hello. Hello, Dr. Casey Pelios. Yes. <laughs> Mrs. <laughs> Jennifer Way. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. How are you? Good. So does your audience want to know how we know each other? Yeah. You want to tell them? Sure. Um, so Casey and I met in seventh grade, yeah, I, I think. think. So. Yeah, seventh grade. Seventh grade. Back when your- I was... In honors school. classes. No, mm-hmm. no. Uh, I was at Schubert. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. That's where I did. North Baldwin. Yeah. I was, I'm such a nerd. I was in PAG, the program for the academically gifted at Schubert, but I, um, I was kicked out at the end of fifth grade because of misbehavior. <laughs> I was so rude. Oh my God. I was so <laughs> rude to poor Miss, oh, what was her name? Miss Rogers. Oh my God. Oh my God. I was just like a terror when I was a kid. I was ADHD, totally undiagnosed and was just had no impulse control and would like raise my hand to answer a question and just like belch loudly for like 15 seconds. 
<laughs> it was like that yeah she hated me she really hated me and uh yeah she got me kicked out and it was really awkward because she lived at the corner of my block like she was at the opposite end of my block so like i would have to go by her house every day um oh after shit. that <laughs> yeah. yeah that was i remember you being very like smart alecky yeah in seventh grade ass. yeah yeah but ass. funny like that's yeah, was what I, I always I was yeah you funny, were funny not annoying <laughs> no you were you were funny like you really? made class interesting okay. that's what I remember well, that's a compliment yeah but then I quickly um got out of AP classes <laughs> once I got closer to high school but mm. but so we went to high school together we we went to college in the same town um I have another yeah, Cornell I'll... grad <laughs> I New York. I yeah around, New York. around and I crossed paths I was a film major actually and at Cornell um for a time and uh met a run through that I mean we weren't like close friends but like you know I would run into him we used to like back then we actually still did editing like I took a 60 millimeter film class and like edited with like the splicing tape and everything yeah. I love yeah. that and video was like right at the very beginning like I think Avid had just come out and it was like this huge new fangles like one of those like I'm probably making this memory up but it I have this memory of like a like an entire office room filled with computers like you know like nasa in the 1970s or something <laughs> it sure wasn't like that but yeah no that was master control mm, that's mm-hmm. what it was called was it at least at ithaca we had that we had a yeah. master control room so that was that was like all of the digital well it wasn't even digital it was still analog for yeah, video still video, i was yes. a video manager right or right, manager right. i wasn't a manager <laughs> i was a video major but i remember uh yeah ithaca has great i'm sure it still has a great um uh, what's it called? Like the communications, program. communications, video stuff. Were you in college at the same time as the ancient aliens guy? Yes, he was in my <laughs> classes. Was he? Yeah, he that's was. That's amazing. That's and and I remember when all that stuff came out, I was like, huh? <laughs> he was a media, like he was a meteor major. What's his name again? Well, I'm forgetting his name. I, know he's I don't even. Uh, he's Greek, <laughs> oh my right? Like I know yeah. that there's a. Opolis at the end of his name or something. Ancient aliens, Greek guy. Sorry, audience, but I need to do this. George Tukalos. That's right. Yes. Yes. (sighs) Amazing. He was nice. He was quiet. Like I, I mean, I don't really remember him. I just was. I mean, I was probably obnoxious and was a little like he's dorky. But um, yeah, no, he was in my class. Yeah, because I remember looking at, like, I looked him up on Wikipedia once um, and saw that he went to Ithaca College and that he's around our age. And I was like, fuck, this guy was yeah. in Ithaca at the same time. Yes, we have a yeah. lot of, we have a lot of alumni in, con- I mean, especially in Baldwin, even. Really? We've got, like, well, Matt Robano is, like, I know he went a musician. A, yeah, didn't he? Wasn't he in what? What mini rock band he was? He was he in, in like Taking Back Sunday. That's or right. That's right. That's right. That's right. You know, welcome Chris to the Wa- Self Consciousness Podcast, where yeah. we just talk about famous people that we used to know in high school. Right. Well, Chris Weidman is a guy I didn't know him, but he was friends with my little sister, and he's like one of the. He's like an MMA champ, like a huge, huge. He's one of the most famous MMA fighters in the whole world. Chris Weidman. He, yeah. That is. Yeah, Gold I didn't know. Baldwin. I wouldn't have known that if my sister didn't go to high school with him. But D. Snyder, little known fact. D. Snyder. Also, D. Snyder also went to Schubert. Actually. He did, <laughs> and his picture was on the on the wall. Um, I know that's why. Taylor Dane. Taylor Dane, who was real actually name is Leslie, Leslie Wonderman. Wonderman. <laughs> yep. Oh my God, we're such nerds. We need to stop. I'm sorry. <laughs> we need to stop. <laughs> Casey. Yeah, Casey Dad. is probably one of like he's just one of those people who I you always remember. Um, and I was uh, like his name popped into my head recently, and I looked him up, and I couldn't believe what I found that he is basically one of the. Oh God, I'm just going to use the wrong words. Um, he's, he's just kind of one of the, the beginnings of the movement of using psychedelics in medical therapies. And Mm. I just was like blown away by kind of what you've accomplished in the last 20 years. Thank you. So there's a little humbling Mm, <laughs> introduction you. for I'm you. St- I'm still a spaz, so don't worry about it. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, thank you. Alas. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was, um, I don't know. So where do you want to start? So let's talk about a little, 
you know, your, how did you move into this field? Um, mm-hmm. I know you've talked about it a couple of times, um, but I, I'd just love to hear kind of your, your journey into becoming a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then that kind of yeah. moving into the spaces that you're in now. Sure. Right. So, yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, I was a film major in college, uh, which doesn't necessarily um, flow into doing the work that I do in a straight line, but um, yeah, well, so it was a circuitous path for sure. I mean, I, like I said, I, I measured in film, uh, ended up really regretting that decision uh, in my senior year of college, not because I don't like, I love film, but I just realized uh, that I didn't have the self-discipline. I think it's much, much, much more difficult to be successful as an artist, any type of creative professional than it is, and be true to that art than it is to, to literally almost anything else, like much harder than going through medical school for me anyway. Wow. Um, some, some people have, you know, are not ADHD and have their own internal way of structuring their time and managing themselves in time. And I just, that's never been a strength for me. And so, um, and I, I had a deep intuition about that. Um, and we realized that like, this isn't what I'm kind of up to do um, to this day. I love film and I love, literature I love art of all kinds but um which ultimately played into why I ended up going to psychiatry but I'll get to that a little later but so I just loved science like and the thing like so I had placed out of the science requirements at Cornell just through my AP credits from high school and like made the like I think stupid honestly in retrospect maybe not stupid but like misguided decision to not take any science classes while I was there and I, I just remember like there was just a period of time in my senior year of college where I was like why didn't I do I like I love biology like why didn't I take any of these classes like this is one of like the most prestigious like you know science and biology you know engineering universities in the world like why didn't I avail myself of any of this and I found myself regretting that and then found myself wanting to, I didn't know I wanted to be a psychiatrist, but I I knew I wanted to do something that I felt would be really meaningful. Um, Like I didn't want to ever wake up uh, in the morning and feel like I was going to a job that was just a way to make money and just going through the motions. Like I just knew that would be soul crushing for me. And, and so, you know, I had wanted to be a doctor actually when I was a kid, when I was a little kid. And the reason why I didn't pursue that. Why I wasn't pre-med in college is almost literally because my father wanted me to, to do it. <laughs> I was like, well, if my dad wants me to do it, it has to be wrong. It has to be the wrong choice. And so I'm not going to do that. Um, and so, you know, which was misguided too, but I had to come to it at my own because he wanted me to do it for the wrong reasons. Like he's like, he's born in Greece. I'm a first generation, like, you know, immigrant. Well, he was an immigrant. I was, I'm first generation you know, but he was, grew up in very like impoverished uh, beginnings and, and became very fixated on like realizing the American dream for himself when like my grandfather like sold hot dogs on the street corners of Jamaica, Queens and to bring, you know, his family over. And it was like this, you know, and my dad became very, very successful by working his ass off. I don't know if you remember Nunley's. Um, yeah. Yeah. So my dad ran, so Nunley's for the 99.9% of people who don't know what that is, uh, is, uh, used to be an amusement park. It's now a pep boys, but the land used to be an amusement park, an amazing amusement park. It had like an old tiny, one of those old wooden carbon carousels from like the 1890s in it. That was functional that we would use. It had an arcade. My first video game. You could grab the brass ring. Yes. You could lean over and actually grab it. Yeah. Yes. There were like you know, back in the eighties when I was like running around there, like a maniac, like, you know, I was playing centipede and Pac-Man, like all of like my first like video game experiences were there, which was a big deal for me when yeah. I was a kid. Um, they had a little miniature roller coaster, a mini golf yeah. course. It was amazing. So and there was like, like the, with like little boats. Yeah. Those little boats, <laughs> those little teacups. It was awesome. Yep. Um, and so my dad, so there was like the Nunley family, I guess that ran the amusement park, but then there was like this restaurant piece connected to it, which is like pizza and burgers. So that was my dad's. Like my dad worked literally 364 days a year in that restaurant. So I grew up like in a very privileged, like upper middle class background because of his work. Um, but th- he was all about that, all about status and money and like wanted me to become a doctor so that I could have status and money. And those are the things that I, I honestly couldn't give 
less of a shit about growing up. This relationship with money and this, this sort of the, the impetus for you to kind of go into medicine was really just to kind of not, not do it because your dad said so, because he was coming from a different sort of intent. Right. That yes. you couldn't align with philosophically. That I couldn't align with, right. I had to find my own alignment with it. I mean, I think I was always sort of fated to do to do this, but I had to come to it on my own terms. And so I, so then, long story short, I learned about the possibility of doing a post-bac, which just means going back after you graduate college to do undergraduate courses to satisfy prerequisites for some other graduate. Graduated Cornell in 98, uh, spent the summer in Greece with family and just like spent the whole summer really just reflecting on what, uh, what I wanted to do with my life. I was thinking about maybe doing a post-bac and that's when it, I finally decided to do it. And so I went back home, lived at home and uh, ended up commuting to Stony Brook and taking all the pre-med classes there. Um, mm-hmm. And like, I just remember this moment sitting in the graduation ceremony of Cornell, feeling like I had squandered an Ivy League education because it was a really sickening feeling like we had people people's parents flying from all over the world to come to this ceremony I forget who even spoke at our ceremony um I think it was somebody lame like some like ESPN commentator or something I don't know (laughs) maybe it was somebody cool I don't remember I just spent a lot of time like just kind of lost like I loved film but like again ADHD had developed no skills of like how to study how to work I was one of those kids who had ADHD pretty bad ADHD, but it was like really smart. And so smart enough to like not have to study. Like if I just, I would hyper-focus in class. This is the thing people, a lot of people without ADHD don't realize people with ADHD, it's not like you can't focus. It's like you can focus, but you can, you have to be really like gripped by something to focus. So, and I was genuinely fascinated with a lot of the things that we would learn about in class. And so I would just hyper-focus in class and mm-hmm. absorb all this information and then not have to study and still do really well on the exams. And so like that was a great in high school when like all I wanted to do was fuck around and play video games and whatever, but like not great when I got to college and suddenly it's like that tactic doesn't work anymore. I had a very deeply bred mistrust of authority figures um, that has persisted to this day. And, and, but I think tempered with a lot more wisdom now when I'm 45 than when I was 17, but but like this, I think it sounds pretty healthy to be honest. It, it is. It is healthy. Now that we know what authority is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, that was so like, you know, I I thought that I was going to be go, like very naively thought I could go into politics and change the world and that that certainly probably would have destroyed me too, but um but realized very quickly that like I hated pre-law. I hated I didn't would not want to go to law school. I didn't want to do any of that stuff. And so like, you know, midstream in college like my junior year I decided to switch majors and spent my junior and senior year studying uh, film but interestingly it was a film class that first um, sparked my my passion for what ultimately became my career in psychiatry so I learned about Carl Jung's work in a class called film and spiritual questions um, which was which was an amazing class by far my probably one of the only classes I got an A in actually in college um, because it was amazing. Uh, Don Fredrickson, who's since passed away, was our professor. Uh, he was like, I looked him up recently. Like he was actually like, um, like a Zen Buddhist, like, uh, like advanced practitioner. I didn't under- know that about him. Really? Actually, He was like, yeah, like he was like a pretty, had a pretty advanced spiritual practice of his own. Um, I was very fortunate to be in that class and um, discovered the Tao Te Ching in, in that class. Um, and then read work from Carl Jung. His work on mandalas is the first thing I'd ever read by him and blew my mind. I've learned about the idea of the self with a capital S, that archetype, which has become a huge and central piece of just like my whole worldview and the way I understand myself and the way I understand my patients. And it's, it's really, I mean, Jung is one of my absolute heroes. Most of my time was spent not studying in college and sitting in that graduation ceremony, I just felt like, wow, I just spent four years fucking around, mailing it in in most of my classes. I had like a 2.4 GPA or something graduate, like well below my potential. That was like a really watershed moment for me and the turning point, just that feeling like never wanting to ever feel like that again, like that I had this opportunity to do something really good and meaningful in my life. And I fucked it up because of whatever. And like, I've since unraveled the reasons why I was fucking, I was dealing with a lot of unresolved trauma. I mean, Backing up a little bit, uh, when I was in my junior in high school, my best friend, uh, uh, 
kid by the name of Frank Egan uh, committed suicide. He was went to Chaminade, so he wasn't in our high school. So I think it probably didn't wasn't as impactful in, in our high school as it would have been if he. But he like he was in I think he was in junior high with us. Like I was in elementary school with him. He was like my best friend from like seventh grade onward, and that's a hugely formative period of your life. Like those, you know, those the friends that you make. It's like it's like family. Like you really just for me especially because I as you could probably ascertain like my home life wasn't super rosy and like I wasn't getting a lot of well I have, never... I have no idea what that's about <laughs> just kidding <laughs> I know you do. Uh, I don't know the details but but I, I know that you do um and I don't think it's not an accident either that like people on this path uh have suffered wounds in this way um it's part of what it's the initiation it's the initiation yeah exactly so um anyway so he committed suicide I was devastated. Um, and, uh, you know, I, and I just lost my way, you know, it was, it was a jun- beginning of junior year is October of junior year of high school. And like, that's the year, like when you're trying to like really get into a good school, you know, you need to be really, you know, kicking it up. And it was tough. It was tough for me. And I never dealt with it. Like, you know, I, my dad's response to, Frank's suicide because I was like it was like three months on like my best friend in the world had literally just killed himself uh the first death I had ever experienced and I was still upset about it and my dad's response was like what are you were you gay with him like why why are you so upset oh my god yeah oh my god like no dad I'm not gay I wasn't gay like he was my best friend like what kind of question is that like that just encapsulates like further ripping open the wound yeah. Well, yeah. And also, you know, that I bring that up because it really encapsulates like the amount of like attunement that I had as a kid, which was like nil. Um, and so again, made me who I am in a lot of ways. And so I don't regret it or begrudge it or anything. And I've, I can only say that after years and years of psychotherapy, but you know, it's, it's, there was a lot of wounds that I needed to heal that just weren't being addressed. And so I had this experience on LSD as a freshman in college I went down to visit Adam Galleon uh, in at, at UPenn, <laughs> yeah, another yeah. high school friend of ours. Um, uh, he was at Penn. I was there visiting on my spring break. Um, anyway, long story short, I had a really, really profound LSD experience that was a full-blown mystical experience, but then it and ended up becoming very destabilizing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it just took the lid off of a lot of unresolved trauma, like Frank's suicide, not least, probably central to that, but other, just also childhood trauma, attachment trauma. Um, and it was very destabilizing for me. And so um, I ended up almost being psychiatrically hospitalized. I wasn't, they took me to the ER and probably would have hospitalized me if my dad didn't drive up from New York to drive me down. I can tell you that was not a fun, <laughs> actually it was fun for me because I was still like kind of hypomanic and like, whatever, it was cool for me, not cool for him. but. Um, you know, they, so it was, it was essentially, I had like an LSD induced manic episode and they thought that I was bipolar. I wasn't because I have mm-hmm. never had another manic episode since then. It was, you know, psychedelics, this is a cautionary tale, psychedelics when they're used irresponsibly or, you know, without the proper container can really destabilize people and it can look indistinguishable from uh, what we would call like an endogenous mental illness or a primary psychotic disorder. I mean, I was psychotic for about a week maybe even longer than that. Um, so, you know, but I, I, I didn't get on any psychiatric medication. Like, again, they told me in Philadelphia at the ER that, that, that they thought I was bipolar, that I needed to be on lithium and all this stuff. And I was like, I'm not taking any of this stuff. And my dad came, picked me up. I spent another week, instead of going back to school, I spent another week at home. And then I went back up to Cornell finished out the semester there um, and was still <laughs> not sane for another couple of months. Um, but like muddled through, ended up with like a 1.3 GPA, <laughs> failed a couple of classes, whatever. Um, and then came home and spent the summer, uh, I was supposed to go to Greece that summer, that trip was canceled. And I just basically stayed home the entire summer working at, uh, my dad was then operating randomly a fucking clam bar in like Lido beach or something. So I spent every day like working, those. <laughs> <laughs> working at a, at a fucking clam bar. I heard you and, say clam bar. I was like Lido beach. <laughs> yeah. 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 Lido beach. Uh, 
Sorry, so, not that it's a great memory for you, but you know who's from Lido Beach? We're gonna be, uh, Rick uh, Rick Rubin's from Lido Beach, actually. Really? Yes. Yeah, Jeez. he's from Lido Beach or Long Beach. I think it's Lido Beach. There's some cool people from Long Island, man. There's some really cool people from Long Island. Yeah. Like, I can't. Like, Whenever we go back, my husband's like, "Do you feel your power is getting stronger?" I'm like, "No, I feel them weakening actually because I hate Long Island." <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Much, no, Lou but... Reed. Lou Reed's from Long Island. Yep. Eddie Murphy. I mean, there's some really, really. That's right. Uh, uh, also, uh, Rakeem from Eric B and Rakeem is yeah. from. Among Island. I mean, all of De La Soul. Yeah, EPMD. I, I mean, some like legit, legit stuff legit. happening on Long Island. Yeah. Like, real. I didn't know that. I was very <laughs> self-conscious about being from Long Island when I was a kid, especially yeah. when, to, right? Like, especially going to Cornell. Like, I went to school with so many like rich kids from like New York City private schools. Like, all the Manhattan yeah. kids seemed so cool to me. And like, yep. they I'm didn't have the like, accents that we had. Right. I just felt like yeah. a bumpkin, you know? Like, <laughs> Didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I fucking hated it. I was so embarrassed. It was so when I when I lived I lived in France, and I would tell people I was from New York, right? And they're like, oh, "I love New York," and I'm like, "But I don't tell them Long Island." Yeah, you don't I'm say like, Baldwin. Like, whatever. We're on the same island as Brooklyn. It like, is. That's it Long is. Island. Brooklyn's technically Long Island. Yes, <laughs> it is. It goddamn is. Anyway, so <laughs> thank you. <Kate. laughs> so I will claim everyone also from Brooklyn. <laughs> thank you for validating. Yes, my all, insecurities about yeah, long island yeah for sure come on <laughs> anyway so um you know i'm rambling um, no no i are you kidding this is this is what this podcast is all about rambling good rambling um mm. well you so you finished the so you had the trip what was the did you have any i know you said you had a mystical experience on mm. that lsd trip mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is there anything out of that that you're still kind of able to look at that you remember that you were like, oh my God, reality is not what I think it is. A hundred percent. I basically had this experience where, I mean, this is embarrassing because it's such a cliche, but like, and I, I'm not a deadhead. I was not into the Grateful Dead then. I didn't become into the Grateful Dead afterwards, but because Adam Galleon wanted to go to the dead show that happened to be like going coming through town at that time, I was like, sure, whatever. I got nothing else to do. I'm here visiting you. So like, so we went and on literally like in the parking lot of the Philadelphia Spectrum where they played, this was in 1995, there was just some guy, people, not just one guy, there's probably hundreds of people, but like some guy was like selling hits of acid and he sold us each two and a half hits of acid and I took it like right before the show and then like it started coming on during the set, their first set and I had never really was into the Grateful Dead and like knew one or two songs. Like I wasn't like, I didn't hate them. Like I know a lot of punk rock kids I hung out with in college, like hated the Grateful Dead. I was yeah. like, whatever, they're just like, <laughs> fine. You know, um, but cause there was a lot of deadheads in Long Island actually kids that I knew growing up. So I was like, Meh, it's, it's my not, sister was, yeah. yeah. It's like not the worst anyway. So um, not fish, sorry. Yeah, no fish is awful. Fish is circus. <laughs> Don't get me started on fish. I cannot stand fish. Uh, they're playing their set and I don't know how to describe it other than like every song that they played was like this, like, it wasn't like a sequence of events, like, you know, first note to last note. It was like a quantum event. Like the whole oh. thing happened like as a whole. And mm -hmm. like, it was, I, I, my ego boundaries dissolved. My consciousness dissolved. I myself did not dissolve, but like all those boundaries dissolved and every single song was like this, like, upswelling like an ocean of light and sound and consciousness that the most profound thing is that I was my consciousness was connected to every other person's in that room I'm sure many if not most of whom were also on psychedelics um you know for like that period of whatever three five seven minutes however long each song was it was like a quantum event where like I just felt like I was just dissolved into an ocean oceanic bliss Right, which is one of the hallmarks of, of, a, of a classic mystical experience. I didn't know that at the time, learned that yeah. after, but um, years after. But, um, and then, like in between the sets, like it was like a little bit of like my sort of what I've since come to think about is like particulate consciousness. I have this theory of consciousness that I, I gave a talk on uh, back in 2016. I was at the psychedelic conference. We can talk about that later, but I have this theory that like consciousness it's not really a theory it's just like a kind of way a heuristic a way of thinking about consciousness that is analogous to like the wave particle duality of matter 
I mean, I, I think it also, I think it really actually reflects something ontologically true about consciousness, but I don't really have enough evidence to make that claim. So I'm just posing this as a, as a heuristic device where you can think of consciousness as existing on a spectrum from particle, particulate on the one hand to wave-like on the other. And when we say wave-like in the quantum mechanical sense of that term, it means non-local, it means like diffuse. So this whole wave particle thing, you know, there's for any like subatomic particle, there's something called a wave function, which is like, it's basically a mathematical function that describes a probability of where a particle could be at any particular given instant of time in terms of its position in space. And so that's, that's the wave function. And in quantum physics, quantum mechanics, you describe subatomic particles as, as their wave function. They're not, and they only, what's really mind blowing about quantum mechanics- Not their like material. Right, quality. right. Well, but so it's like, we're, what we're talking about is like, cause what is a material body? It's, it's like having a discrete boundary that is in a particular position in time and space, right? Like mm -hmm. think about a ball, right? The ball is a ball because it's round and it's this particular ball because it's here at this moment at this particular position in space. That's how pre-quantum mechanics that Newtonian physics is based on those assumptions that everything is just a billiard ball like that. What yeah. the revolution of quantum mechanics ushered in uh, was this idea that actually things are a lot stranger than that. Things are only have that particulate fixed position in time and place upon an act of observation when consciousness intervenes. And that's what's really profound about it. Um, and so to me, I think the mind actually acts in the same way that we're constantly in this spectrum from, so, so when, when we're talking about the wave-like properties of matter, we mean diffusely distributed throughout time and space. So what you see in a wave function is just a probability. Like electron could be here. And so there's, it's a, there's a higher probability that it will be in this particular region of space, but in theory, it could be anywhere in, in the entire infinite expanse of space. And it's only upon observation that we, we know, we can say that it is fixed here in, in this particular place at this particular time. So that to me just underlies this idea that like, there is a similar phenomenon going on with consciousness, wherein we have very particular meaning boundaried, um, separate uh, modes or states of consciousness. So like my understanding myself, you know, as a person that's distinct from you, um, I have, you know, I'm encapsulated in this like skin sack suit, whatever, um, that sort of delineates like where I end and where my environment begins. But we are constantly transcending those boundaries. Even language itself is a technology. Like you and I, you know, are using language. I'm making these noises, these sounds with my mouth and using the air in my lungs to make these noises that is literally transcending the boundary between my physical, you know, I-ness or, or my separate particulate awareness and yours. It's a, it's a bridge between our two particular consciousnesses. So this is not like an outlandish phenomenon. It's just something we take totally for granted. Yeah. And what, what psychedelics do, in my opinion, is that they push us towards more wave-like states of consciousness where the boundaries that separate one person from another or one person from their environment are even more, uh, become even more porous until they can dissolve altogether. And when you're in a mystical state, to me, being in a mystical state is really just synonymous with saying that like your ego boundaries are essentially dissolving. But what's fascinating about it is that you do not stop existing. In fact, that I-ness is still very much there, um, but it's, it's connected to the I-ness that is actually identical with the I-ness of everybody else and every other being in the universe really. Um, that's what this oceanic boundless, it's like there's, so it, this, it's rooted in this idea that, that uh, called panpsychism, which is just the idea that uh, consciousness is a fundamental property of reality, of matter. So, so meaning like there's a, a, a philosopher by the name of uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. He was a Jesuit priest, but he's also um, an anthrop, not an anthrop, was he an anthropologist or, um, or he was a paleontologist, um, mm. but he came up with this idea of the noosphere. I don't know if you've ever heard that concept. I've heard of that concept, yeah. but I don't so he, know what it would be. He, he essentially like kind of predicted the internet back in like the thirties or forties. Um, this idea that, that like, 
we're becoming increasingly connected in our consciousness through technology um, and that, you know, there's uh, a biosphere, which is, so there's like a lithosphere, which is just like the stones that make up the earth. And then there's like a biosphere, which is the life layer of the earth. And then there's this noosphere, which is like the mental layer of the earth. Oh, you can think of it. It's like, mm -hmm. so there's like the atmosphere, the stratosphere. So there's like lithosphere, atmosphere. The Akashic field. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the, the Akashic yeah. field, well, the Akashic field to me is more actually just like the idea that consciousness is diffusely distributed throughout everything and that we are each these kind of like little nodes of consciousness embedded in that field. And like, I think what our brains do, our brains don't produce consciousness. And this is a big controversy in neuroscience. To me, I don't think there's a controversy about it at all. I think the people who think that the brain produces consciousness are just flat out wrong. Um, but to me, the brain is, uh, it's, it's a lens, it's, it's something that concentrates consciousness, the diffuse consciousness that exists pervasively everywhere is concentrated into a node by this miracle that is our brains. Um, and the brains, one, one of its primary functions, and this was uh, an idea that was initially put forward by Henri Bergson, later adapted by uh, Aldous Huxley in Doors of Perception, mm -hmm. this idea that the brain exists, its primary function is as a reducing valve. It doesn't generate consciousness. In fact, all it, what it does is limits the amount of information that arises into the sphere of conscious awareness uh, through this reducing valve function. Meaning, because if you think about it, you know, we're, our senses are constantly bombarded with information at all times, and we don't have the processing power to deal with it all. And so we have to limit out what is the thing that I need to, what like through, from an evolutionary standpoint, what's the thing that I need to do to sustain my survival? What do I need to, to maintain my body survival? What do I need to reproduce? What do I need to not get eaten or killed? So yeah. like, that's like the brain's like most primitive functions. And we see this in animals of all, at all levels, but like as the brain gets more and more sophisticated, it's like we are, we live in very, very complex environments. So, so our environment is, becomes more than just physical it's also social and, and i think where a lot of like implicit biases that like fuel you know horrible sociological trends like racism and sexism comes from this vital function that the brain serves to just boil things down into a stereotype because we don't have the processing power to deal constantly with all the nuances we need these mental shortcuts just to get through the day and it takes an act of will of meta awareness to recognize when we're doing that and when it's wrong to do that yeah right um, it's a very powerful, and the reason why it's so persistent is because it serves such a vital, you know, almost biological function for us. Um, but part of becoming more conscious and more aware is learning how to transcend uh, the biases and the limitations imposed by our biology, if that makes sense. And, so, and our programming. And our programming. Cultural programming. Our programming that cultural programming, our cultural conditioning, which again, these are all ways of like creating shortcuts in the mind so that you can use, we can use our very limited capacities uh, efficiently. It's about efficient expenditure of energy. Do you have these conversations with, with your peers? Like, what was it like? I mean, you're, this is obviously a very formed philosophy and it wasn't by any means, anything that you had like already settled when you no, entered and, the field. Right. And much of it is, I, I mean, some of it is maybe a little bit original thought for me, but a lot of it is just based on like ancient philosophies going back thousands of years. So it's like yeah. me just like, I'm just connecting dots most of the time. Yeah. But um, yeah, I do talk about it sometimes. I mean, they're in the field, there are, uh, there are people in the field who are open to these ideas. There are also people in the field who take a much more reductionist uh, approach to psychedelics and, and that's okay. I mean, I think yeah. it's just part of the journey that we're on and evolving as a species. Um, I do feel like part of my, what I was put here to do is to try and build bridges between these conceptual worlds in Philly, I had this really profound psychedelic experience. It was beautiful. One of the most important, profound weeks of my life. Cause that, that dead show was like on the maybe second or third day I was there. And the whole rest of the week, I was just like, went off the rails, but in like most of the time in like the best possible way, um, I had to come back down to earth, but like, I will forever credit that week of my life as putting me on the path that I'm on now. Um, I had a lot to unpack from that, a lot to like, I had to parse out a lot of kind of noise from the signal, but the signal is, uh, was life-changing and, and remains at the core of like my understanding of the universe um, and of psychology. At, this was in 1995. At that time, the only psychedelic research, I mean, I was aware of the research that had gotten 
done in the 50s and 60s with psychedelics. Um, people like Stan Groff and, you know, before him, Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, who became Ram Dass. And that whole, you know, cultural phenomenon, obviously, is kind of like part of our all, you know, our, our, our shared mythology in this country. But like, yeah. so I was aware of that, but I did not know. And I was also aware that it, there was essentially a moratorium uh, at the end of the 1960s and that there was no psychedelic research happening anymore. And that was kind of still the state of affairs in 1995. I mean, Rick Strassman at University of New Mexico had started his DMT work uh, in like around 1994, but totally off the radar, totally unbeknownst to me at the time. And so, and I was not, sadly, I was not aware of Stan Gross, really important work with spiritual emergence, him and his, um, his uh, late wife, Christina Groff, wrote a book called Spiritual Emergence um, that was about exactly what I had gone through, which was like, uh, this can happen frequently from psychedelics, but sometimes not even with psychedelics where somebody just has like a Kundalini uprising that just makes them bananas because they don't have, we don't have a, a meta physical framework that can contain what's happening, at least not in our culture. You know, the Abrahamic religions really uh, did a number on Gnostic traditions uh, in, in our, in our, civilization so it's which is another thing that i feel really called to try and help um bring back yeah yeah like i i I, you know part of what i want to build is is scientifically grounded spiritual practice for people so after your medical degree okay so 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 you went to medical school so yeah so i went i did I, i had that sort of crisis moment decided that I wanted to go back to medical school um, because you know because I felt really felt called to do something that I would feel good about that the nature of my work was actually spiritually fulfilling and not just you know financially rewarding and so I decided to go back to medical school I mean spent a few years it took me about a year and a half to do all the pre-med prerequisites at Sony Brook and then I spent three years actually working uh, in North Carolina I was at Duke University in the lab studying trying to find a HIV vaccine so and 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 really fell in love with immunology actually and virology and thought maybe I would become an immunologist or something I I just I just knew I wanted to go to medical school I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do Um, and my concept of psychiatry at the time was very slanted and biased Uh, I thought that like maybe the stuff that Carl Jung did back in the 50s was cool but like nowadays my conception of psychiatrist was just like pill pushers and like I just really wasn't interested in that so I didn't think I was going to go into psychiatry when I started medical school um and to me when I got to my psychiatry rotation I um, unexpectedly fell in love with it because here was this what I had learned through a lot of like my other rotations and through medical school the two and a half years of medical school I'd done to that point was that a lot of it was about like very much grounded in reductionist materialist science insofar as we are trained to sort of extract out and set aside the individual humanity of our patients so that we can focus on like the real data which is like lab values and radiographic images and um thing and like physical exam findings things that can be like quantified and measured and like all the stuff that can't be easily measured is sort of thrown out the window is not important or maybe just like window dressing, right? And so like the individuality of humanity of people, to me, felt like it was being lost in my internal medicine rotation when, you know, we were, people were just essentially like a room number when we would talk about them and we would just be looking at their lab values and, you know, managing numbers, basically. It's like, you know, data manipulation, Um, you know, which isn't to say that that work's not important. Obviously, like people's lives are saved through Western medicine. Like it's for certain things, it's the best thing. Like, you know, if I, if I break my leg, like I want to go to a Western hospital and have them help me fix it. Right. But it just felt like kind of, like I saw patients being dehumanized, not by any like malicious uh, reason or, or for, or because of any malicious reason, but, but just because of the nature of the way uh, humanness is sort of bred out of uh, science. Right. And, you know, we're so, but in psychiatry. The healer has been taken out. The healer has been taken out. Yes. And yes, that's also true um, in a lot of ways. Um, It's all about the science and the technology, which again, powerful tools. And I'm not anti-science. I just think science is not the whole story. I think it's, it's, it's an amazing 
part of the answer, but it's not the whole answer. And that's, yeah. I think, why our culture is hitting a wall right now, because we're reaching the limits of what science can actually provide us. And we need to start getting back to some of our other modes of ascertainment of truth to supplement that, not to replace it. So it became clear to me that like, I was not going to be happy being like a garden variety physician. Like I needed to be a psychiatrist to really, it was a fuller, felt like a fuller expression of who I was, um, who I am. And I ended up coming to NYU for, for, um, for residency and yeah. didn't know what type of psychiatrist I wanted to be. Um, and honestly, I loved my first couple of years of residency, but then like into my third year of residency, when you start getting into more of the outpatient stuff into more like kind of the day-to-day grind of psychiatry is, I started becoming a little bit disillusioned. I started feeling Mm -hmm. more and more this pressure to be a pill pusher. I read a statistic somewhere recently, like 50% of psychiatrists regret their decision to go into psychiatry wow. you've chosen something else but they're you're you're like you're like committed at that point like you've already put yeah. all of these years of training and it's like you can't yeah. it's hard it's not not unheard of but it's hard to switch gears at that point um and try and go to a whole different residency if you, especially if you've been doing psychiatry for years by the time you realize it it's usually too late um yeah. and that's your only source of income at that point <laughs> so i already started feeling that a little bit even in my third year of, of residency um and so um Long story short, Steve Ross, who is a, an addiction psychiatrist, he was one of our uh, professors um, and taught um, addiction psychiatry to us uh, in our like small group didactics. So I knew him from that context. But what I didn't know is that he was uh, one of a very small group at the time of uh, researchers in the psychiatry department using psilocybin-assisted therapy to treat end-of-life cancer-related anxiety and distress. Um, and he gave a, a presentation to the whole department at a Grand Rounds presentation on the very early findings. They had done maybe six participants, I think, at that point. Um, and they presented on the data, the results that they were finding using this methodology, which at that point was very new and very revolutionary. And again, even I didn't certainly I didn't know about the psychedelic research that had just started happening in the mid 90s. And I was still oblivious to it in 2009 when this, when I attended this lecture. So all in all, in one fell swoop, I realized that, holy shit, psychedelic research is happening again in the United States. Not only is it happening again, it's happening at the very residency program where I am training. (laughs) At that point, it was only happening at like two places in the whole country, like Hopkins and NYU. There had been a small study done at UCLA by Charlie Grobe that was completed. There wasn't any more work going on. So there was only two places. I mean, then there was MDMA work happening through MAPS, which I wasn't aware of at that time yet either. But, you know, as far as psilocybin, those were the, this was one of two places where this was happening. And so, like, it just came, it was like a, a revelation, like, holy yeah. shit, this is why I went, like, a series of, like, kind of random events. Like, the match at NYU was kind of random. Yeah. Um, my decision to even delay medical school. I didn't start medical school until I was 27. I spent three years doing research, a couple of years in my post back. So like, had I started medical school right out of college, the way most people do, or taken a year off, which is what most people do, I would not have been in my residency training program at the time that the study was happening. So th- there's that synchronicity. There's, and so like suddenly it was like, and obviously as, as you know, I mentioned before, like the experience I had, uh, as a freshman in college on LSD was life-changing and like was still informing my way of understanding myself in the world. Um, it, it just, everything just came together and it was just like sitting in, had like almost like the, now that I think about it, it was like the opposite moment to the one that I had sitting in my uh, graduation ceremony at Cornell. It was like suddenly wow. like now I'm actually sitting in the right place at the right time. And this is, but you know, the beauty of that dark moment in my graduation ceremony is again, like, all those things that need to happen, all those things that seemed like such a horrible set of circumstances at the time were part and parcel of this journey that in, from, in hindsight makes perfect sense is like this beautiful arabesque design of synchronicities that led me to sit, be sitting there at that moment. So it was like a really, really profound moment. All at once I knew like, this is what I was here to do. And like, I feel really blessed to have had that moment. Like it's, it's you know, 
I mean, I made some choices that contributed to it, but honestly, a lot of this is to me, divine providence or the Tao or however you want to describe it. Um, and uh, I approached Steve at the end of that lecture. I was like, how do I do this? How do I get involved? And he's like, send me an email. We'll see what happens. And before you know it, I was the study therapist for the ninth participant in that clinical trial. And um, that was my first exposure to uh, psychedelics used as medicines. Um, and that was profound. And my involvement in that study was profound. I ended up uh, staying on at NYU after I graduated residency. Uh, Steve and I uh, co-led a study using intravenous ketamine in the emergency department at uh, NYU and Bellevue hospitals uh, as using uh, IV ketamine as an antidepressant, uh, which showed good findings. And um, in about, so that was like 2013, 2014. Uh, in 2016, I started my private practice. I was still working part-time uh, in the ER at NYU doing psychiatry consults. Um, and, uh, but I was started my private practice and then started using ketamine um, as a treatment in my private practice. Uh, well, I was connected to MAPS through Ingmar Gorman, uh, who was a psychotherapist, a psychologist, uh, who ultimately became my co-principal investigator in the phase three trial, one of the two phase three trials that we've done. Um, great guy uh, who I continue to work with to this day, but, um, he connected me to MAPS. MAPS thought I was a good candidate. I interviewed with Marcella and uh, she recommended me as a therapist. And so I went to this training um, at this, uh, <laughs> this like Quaker led uh, like com commune farm up in upstate New York, uh, this place oh called um, Stony Point, um, which is, so it was like a week long in-person training. This is back in 2016. Uh, with a bunch of other therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists from uh, the Northeast. Uh, we basically spent a week living at this like psychedelic summer camp. <laughs> training. Annie and Michael Mithoff were, you know, played us their videos from the phase two trials and trained us basically how to, how to become psychedelic assisted therapists. It was an amazing experience. I feel so blessed and lucky to have been part of that at that time. So it was at this time that Casey and I realized we had gone on for an hour so we scheduled another call and then another one after that. So right around here, you'll find the part two. Yeah, I thought a lot about the things that I was trying to articulate yesterday. I, there's so much, obviously, that I have to say about uh, your question, which is like, how did you get to do what you do? I wish I had like, an, it, there, there's such a securitous path and, and the work itself is so uh, complex and, and in some ways, um, difficult to talk about. I mean, it meaning like it gets into realms that are, that are just, our language isn't well constructed for discussing, um, that it's, it's easy for me to get like, you know, to get off on tangents and to be, uh, a little bit all over the place. So, yeah. and honestly, I don't know why I feel this compulsion to get into some of the philosophy around this when you're asking me about just like my job, but like, it's, it's hard to really extricate those two things. Like, like, you know, the philosophy of mind and philosophy of like just reality ontology, like is really at the root of what has drawn me to my work with psychedelics. And um, it's all kind of of a piece. So it's, it's really hard for me to just like talk about one thing without talking about the other. Yeah. I mean, this is the, this is the kind of, conversation that my audience at least is used to okay. because because it is about integrating these two worlds you know mm -hmm. and and you've had to integrate those two worlds mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. explaining it um perhaps on other you know like if you've had to explain it in other places there there's not we're not coming from like a spirit you know it's, there's a little bit more of a clinical side to it there's mm -hmm. a little mm -hmm. bit more of that aspect but but here um you're just talking as a human and it yeah. does take all of these kinds of perspectives because this is the real human experience it's not right. a packaged soundbite you know it's not like right. a perfect kind of like here's who I am here's yeah. my you know right. my story here's my thing and like boom 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 right I hate that anyway so yeah so yeah, that that's the kind boring. of and and yeah, like inauthentic it's inauthentic and like right now um, as my favorite podcaster, Jessa Reed likes to say, like there, there is, but most of the world is living 
a zombie timeline mm-hmm. um, that like our civilization pretty much ended last year. Mm-hmm. This was the, the beginning of the end and people are existing in a somewhat dead timeline and they're mm-hmm. trying to keep it alive. And mm-hmm. the only way we can sort of evolve consciously is by addressing that and understanding that it's dead, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. are evolving into i think it's maybe in chrysalis form it's dead in the way a caterpillar dies en route to being a butterfly right i mean and that's all death is death is a transformation it's it's from one state to another it's not an ending it's a transition i mean people are holding on to density right now yeah because that's uh that's safety that's like the solid the rock right right but they need it they just need an anchor yeah because we're not on the, you know, it's like this experience is, is an experience of dimensional change. This is a, a dimensional experience. The fact that our bodies are beginning to really understand what that is and how to exist in a multidimensional experience mm-hmm. that we have connection to, we know it in our dreams. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is buried in our language. Mm-hmm. We talk about vibes, you know, mm-hmm. like there's so many words that we use to describe this stuff, but people it's 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 all out there i mean everyone's had these kinds of experiences they just don't talk about them because yeah. you can't prove it and you can't see it and you're the, coming from a perspective like a scientific perspective where you've had to quantify it you've had to measure it well but yeah but the language itself is inadequate and and our tools for analyzing it in many ways can be limiting or at least our, our methodologies around measuring it just very active measuring is, is kind of limiting in certain ways but um but yeah, I, I think what you're, true, you're saying is really true, um, that we are all experiencing collectively a really profound transition um, and a needed transition because you know, the former pattern, the former systems have, have to dissolve because they weren't working well. I mean, they were working uh, quote unquote well for a very small number of privileged elites, but even those people, there's a violence being done to them because they're uh, privilege is, is whether they are acknowledging it or aware of it or not is coming at the expense of uh, deprivation of a vast number of other people, right? And so it's like, that's kind of a violence on both sides, whether the people who are super wealthy understand it as such or not, like they are participating in a system that is doing violence to them on a spiritual level as, as well as the people it's violating uh, physically. Mm-hmm. So um, so, you know, these, I think collectively we are going through a cycle where there's a lot of transition and change and that can often be very chaotic and scary. And that's why we're seeing all this paranoia and craziness. And like, it's, you know, there's a lot of factors that contribute to that, you know, the echo chamber of, of social media and things like that certainly does. And but I think there's just a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty and that definitely promotes a lot of, um, uh, irrational and sometimes unhealthy behavior. Yeah, absolutely. I really refuse and reject the notion that uh, the scientific method is the only uh, valid or useful means at arriving at truth. Um, It is a very powerful and valid means, but it's not the only means. And the scientific worldview is very valid and powerful, but it's, it's partial and incomplete. So, um, and, and this is science itself has started to really uh, demonstrate that to itself through at the very vanguard of scientific inquiry, which is, you know, still quantum mechanics, quantum physics. I mean, but these are, these are insights that are, have existed now for over a hundred years. In some cases, you know, quantum mechanics starting in the early 20th century were well over a hundred years since the Newtonian worldview was turned upside down. And yet that still really hasn't filtered down into, uh, conventional modes of thinking, even among scientists. So it's still been very hard for us to break out of our, you know, the, the reductionist way of looking at things that has persisted, that persisted for centuries before Einstein and Planck and Heisenberg and de Broglie and all these, you know, people who just revolutionized our understanding of reality. The worldview that they're overturning has persisted colloquially for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so that's going to not be easy to shake. And, and also because the ideas that are supplanting Newtonian physics are so strange and bizarre. It's hard. It's not, it's, it's not commonsensical. Like, like the Newtonian Cartesian worldview is very 
common sense because it applies, it's an approximation that applies to the, the way that we are interacting with the world in most situations um, under most circumstances. So it's a very useful sort of um, approximation and kind of a rule of thumb that we can rely upon like almost all the time. But it's, it's that the fact that it's almost all the time and not all the time says something else about the nature of reality that um, only really becomes apparent to us reliably in altered states of consciousness, especially those induced by psychedelics. And so, you know, this is, which is why I have to find myself constantly engaging in this sort of amateur philosophy because I'm, I'm keenly almost like compulsively interested in understanding what the nature of the world is because I'm constantly trying to understand what the nature of myself is and what the nature of the people in my life are and what the nature of my patients, you know, my, my living, I make a living in helping people understand their existence. And so I have to think all the time deeply about that. Um, I feel to, to do my job well. So not that I'm constantly introducing like quantum physics into my psychotherapy cases. I'm not, <laughs> but I have, but it helped. It's helpful to me to understand like, what does it mean to be a human, to be alive? And it really quickly gets into very deep, territory. Um, and so, you know, and then uh, aside, and I think more importantly, maybe not more importantly, but just as importantly as all those other descriptors of myself uh, is the fact that I'm a human being and I'm a journeyer. This is my own journey too. And, and, you know, the real important decision I made uh, to pursue medicine and ultimately psychiatry and ultimately my work as being a psychedelic therapist or researcher, whatever you want to call it, is is driven by this very deep need that I have to feel that like the work that I'm doing eight, 10, 12, 16 hours a day sometimes isn't at the expense of my life's journey. It's not just like a means to an end. It, 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 for me at any rate, and it isn't true for everyone I know, but for me, those two things really can't be separate. Like I have to feel like I am, that what I'm doing with all my time is part of a calling, that it's part of like, what I was put here to do as far as evolving as a human being. Um, otherwise I would, I just, it wouldn't hold my interest and it would feel very uh, like I was violating, doing violence to my own authenticity, authenticity and personhood. And, and I, I feel like it's, it's an obligation. Like life is such a precious thing. And I feel like it is, I feel an obligation to really do what I can to fully express what my true being is. You know, I mean, I think that's what uh, the ancient Greeks meant by know thyself. It's like, you know, it's, it's about the more you get to know yourself, the more you get to know how yourself is sort of connected to the whole of reality. Hey, you, I hope you enjoyed dorking out with us. And if you want to dork out even more, please head on over to my Patreon page where we have part two to this conversation. Um, over on Patreon, you can sign up for one low-priced tier of $5.55 for all you numerology nerds. And that gives you access to my new project called Soul Club. Um, we go a little bit deeper and explore reality in new ways. It's a little bit like the self-consciousness podcast, but different. Um, we have conversations touching on conscious living, psychic ability, mental health, et cetera, et cetera. And part two, Casey goes into depth and shares more about his current work with MDMA, how he and his peers break down mystical experiences in therapy settings, which is insane to me. And he also shares some of his writing, really connecting the dots between philosophy, religion, and quantum physics. I mean, we go deep lecture here. So please, if you're interested in learning more, do join us over at patreon.com slash Jennifer Way. All of Casey's contact information is below in the show notes, but please feel free to leave me a message here on Anchor with any questions you might have. And I just want to say again, thank you so much for being here and I hope you have a great week. Doctors leaving for the holiday season Got crystal ice picks, no gift for the gab And in the parking lot is the sedan body
third.